I'm making the sound and I want to see that bird react to it. Did they like it? Did they not like it? Um, you know, or did they just keep going? One of those things where you're, you're trying to see what is working that, that day for that, uh, for that bird. And then once I have them doing what I wanted to do, it's basically my job just not to screw it up. <laughs> um, a lot of guys overcall, and then there's there's areas where you can also undercall. You know, I mean, if if you're in a high pressure area where there's lots of different um, hunters, sometimes you have to keep that bird's attention, keep them coming towards your decoy spread um, for it to work. So I'm I'm calling to get that reaction. That's that is the number one most important thing a guy can do is, is call for a reaction. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. Eric, have you been out duck hunting at all lately? No, I haven't. I know, kind of lame, but I have not been duck hunting. I went goose hunting one time with Cody, and I've uh, been getting a lot of duck ground ready, but I have not been duck hunting yet. What does it mean to get duck ground ready? Um, just basically been getting all the, the trails cut into the blinds, getting the blinds brushed up, getting them all cleaned up, make sure all the boards are good and secure and haven't rotted out, and just kind of getting things all dressed up and ready to go. Gotcha. What's your, what's your kind of background in duck hunting? Um, you know, I started duck hunting when I was 15 and, uh, it's actually kind of a, kind of a funny story. My dad was not a waterfowl hunter by any means. Um, but my neighbor was really into it. And so he kind of took me under his wing and I ended up shooting my first, uh, first duck with him out at Savi Island and, um, just went in head over heels, fell, fell in love with it. You know, the communication with the birds and, um, just the setting. I, I just kind of loved every aspect of it. And from there, um, you know, just hunted as much as I could and started guiding once I got into college and guided for a couple different outfits for most of my college years and then started guiding on my own in uh, 2009. Yeah. And, and then you kind of got into decoys too. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. So actually kind of got my, my first run at decoys when I was in, in college working for Dave Smith decoys in Lebanon, Oregon there in the Atlanta Valley and uh, worked for those guys for, for a long time and then uh, ended up moving moving far enough away where it just wasn't really effective for me to make the hour and a half commute to work the shop, but started working for um, decoy dancer, which is based out of, out of Vancouver. And when the owner of that, uh, that company decided he just didn't have the time for it anymore, he, uh, he offered to sell it to me. And so um, my wife and I bought that and been building motion duck decoys now for almost 10 years. So it's been a long time. I got to hunt with you and Cody last year and we had a ball. That was my first time ever hunting over that type of motion decoy. What are the regulations here in Oregon for motion decoys? So in Oregon and Washington, both, uh, we can't use any, uh, battery powered or any type of electric powered, mechanically powered decoys. They have to be, um, self-propelled. So you can use wind power decoys, or in our case, we use pull string operated decoys. And, um, that's, you know, it's been like that now for like well over a decade. Um, some folks are fans of it. Some folks aren't, but I've seen both sides. I've hunted in areas where you can use a dozen battery powered decoys. And I've been in areas where you can't use them at all, but, uh, I think it's a pretty good alternative and, and I, I enjoy using them. Well, it's super effective. 
according to a duck, do you think that the sound of of a collar or the motion of a decoy is a is a bigger draw, or is that really case dependent? Um, it can be case dependent when it comes to weather. Um, if a bird, you know, if it's real foggy or if it's hard for the bird to see that motion, then I would say that you know um, a call or you know audio is is much more effective than than sight. But that being said, um, nine times out of ten. I, I think I'd probably get birds come into the spread with the motion first and then finish them with a the call. Um, just you, know, you can track them from a long, long ways out. And I always kind of paint the picture of, you know, if you walked into a bar and everyone there was just standing like a statue, you, you'd probably figure it out pretty quick that something's wrong here. But if you walk in and you're seeing motion and seeing people moving around, it just helps create, you know, paint that picture of, of things being alive, you know, of life. And and like you're saying, under clear conditions, they can see motion from from miles, literally miles. However, you know, actually being able to hear you calling while they're flying and there's wind and everything else, that's a lot closer range. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, if you uh, you know if you're in a helicopter in a, in a plane flying over a marsh or you have a water waterway that has ducks or geese on it. Um, it can be even hard just to spot them on the water, but when you see the, the, the motion, the flash of their wings or birds landing on the water, making ripples or splashing around, um, whether it be ducks or geese, that that's the first thing that, that you and I see. And that's the first thing that the birds see as well. Yeah. And it's an indication to them that, you know, another bird is landing here. That's a safe place to be, um, you know, kind of follow that example. Exactly. Exactly. I want to talk about calling because you are the best duck caller I've ever hunted with. I was absolutely blown away um, by the sounds that you were able to make, not only just like, you know, the tone and realism of the sounds, but you knew which sounds to make and, and when, and I saw ducks crank their head around and, and almost like obey you. So it, it was much farther than just making the right sounds at the right time. You're telling them literally come over here how do you get to that point you know i think it's like if it's, it's just like in calling any any animal whether it be a um you know birds or a turkey or elk um once you get to a, a level of proficiency with your call that you can convey um, emotion that emotion in my opinion is what really triggers birds and um you know commands birds or elk or turkeys whatever it is you're calling that's what really you know gets their reaction um, if I just go out there and make five to seven quacks with a duck call, I'm not telling them to do anything. They're not reacting to anything. They just, they hear a sound. But if you're able to convey that emotion through your, your calling, um, that, that to me is what makes a difference. Now, I think a lot of guys when they're practicing calling, whether it's elk or turkeys or whatever, ducks included, a lot of them just, you know, put their call in their pickup. And when they're driving someplace, stop to traffic, they throw their elbows up on their steering wheel and, you know, they quack or honk or bugle away. Is, is that the appropriate way to learn? Um, and yes, that's kind of a, a tough question. Yes and no, because the, what you want to do is you want to become extremely comfortable with whatever call you're using. So anytime you're practicing that, that, that's a good thing. I mean, more practice you can get in the better. Now, if you want to take it to the next level, I always tell guys, you know, practice with purpose, just blowing your duck call or your goose call just for the fun of it. That's great and all. But if I want to learn a certain, you know, series of notes or a certain, I call it like a riff, you know, I want to be able to learn how to double cluck, triple cluck and moan. 
all within the same sequence, then practice that sequence or practice that sound. You know, if I want to learn to, let's, let's take elk calling because it's a little bit easier to describe different sounds. But like if I want to learn how to bark, I'm not going to practice bugling, you know? Yeah, it's great to get the reed in your mouth and play, play with it and get comfortable with it. But if I want, if I want to learn how to bark, I need to practice just barking. Same thing with a duck call, like a feed chatter. You know, if, if I'm going to try and get a certain sound, I need to practice that certain sound until it becomes automatic. That that muscle memory is what we're what we're working on. We want to be able to put our mouth to the call, and and get the exact sound we're looking for every single time without thinking about it. And and that's why practicing is so important. So practicing, you know, just just having fun. Of course, that's great, but practice with purpose, and that'll that'll kind of take you to the next level. Within the world of duck calls, there's all types of materials in the calls themselves. You've got all all kinds of wood, plastics, acrylics, um, single reed, double reed. But when you look at them, and especially if you're buying off off of a shelf or online or in a catalog, like what in the world do you look for? So when when it comes to to looking at something on the shelf, it's really difficult. It really is. I mean, um, I guess I guess you could look at the overall length of a call. Um, you know, the longer a goose call, the easier it'll be to blow. The shorter a goose call, the harder it is to blow. Duck call is a little bit more difficult because for the most part, overall length is very much the same across the board. Um, so the best thing you can do is, is try those calls out. You know, um, That's when it comes down to personal preference. Do you have a lot of air? Um, do you want to call that blows really easy? Do you want to call that you get really loud on or do you want to call that's a lot quieter? Um, you're, you're trying to try to match that calling style to that call. And just by visual, it's almost impossible. So best thing you can do is try them out. And then, you know, don't be shy to try a bunch of them. I hear guys all the time, they're trying to push a certain type of call or a certain brand of call and um, kind of sit back and chuckle a little bit because, hey, what, what might work for you, James, that doesn't work for me at all, you know? And so finding something that fits your style and, and, and fit, fits what you want out of the call, that's, that's the number one most important. What are some, some of the basic fundamentals? So let's say that we've got a call and we've learned how to make the sounds with that call. And now we're going to go out and actually try and get a duck to come in to a spot. You know, what are some real basic fundamentals of duck calling that, that people can take out there and, and start to learn with? So the quack is definitely, that's like the fundamental building block of, of all your um, communication, you know, on a mallard call. And then once you've figured the quack out, you want to put together a five to seven note um, greeting call or greeting sequence. And that, you know, once you have that down, you can make all sorts of different changes and adjustments to that call in particular to get different reactions. But what I'm doing is I'm actually, I'm only calling when I can see the bird I'm, I'm trying to call at. So that's a, that's a really important thing. I hear guys all the time, well, I just call and, you know, hope something comes in. Well, I'm, I'm calling to get a reaction. So I'm, it's a visual and an, an audio. So I'm making the sound and I want to see that bird react to it. Did they like it? Did they not like it? Um, you know, or did they just keep going? It's one of those things where you're, you're trying to see what is working that, that day for that, uh, for that bird. And then once I have them doing what I want them to do, it's basically my job just not to screw it up. <laughs> um, a lot of guys overcall, and then there's, there's areas where you can also undercall. You know, I mean, if, if you're in a high pressure area where there's lots of different um, hunters, Sometimes you have to keep that bird's attention, keep them coming towards your decoy spread um, for it to work. So I'm, I'm calling to get that reaction. That's, that is the number one most important thing a guy can do is, is call for a reaction. 
Okay, so you know I'm set up and I see a, a flock of five mallards, you know, coming past. They're you know 500 yards away. I give them a, a greeting sequence of five to seven quacks, and you know that hen that's in the front turns her head and you know shifts her wings a little bit, and it looks like they're starting to to hook around and, and maybe give me a look. You know that that I feel like is is a situation that a lot of guys have experienced. And then they're like, what do I do now? So what I would do in that situation is probably follow up with another, another, another sequence that was the same that got the reaction. And at that, at that point, what I'm trying to do is <clears throat> I'm trying to, to build that, that communication with the bird and build that confidence. Cause now once you have them coming your way, you want to keep them coming your way. So I'm not going to call like crazy the whole time they're coming. But if I see them start to waver or drift off, I'm going to hit them again. And uh, this is where kind of an old adage of calling up the wingtips and tail feathers comes in. You know, I'm, I'm going to call on the corners. And these birds are working my spread. Um, I want to keep the, their focus off me, off the blind, but towards the decoy spread. So I'm going to call at them when I want them to hook back and look at the decoys. And the goal is to just, you know, spin them until they're finally right there within, within range. Um, but yeah, it, it's one of those things where I, I say a lot, of, a lot of guys lose birds by not calling enough. Then, then once they are coming, and then they call too much. So it's a happy medium, but um, it's one of those things that over time you'll you'll start to be able to read the bird's body language and uh, and figure out what reaction you need and what you need to do to keep them coming. And then that's also when the motion comes into play. You know, once I've got those birds looking at me, you know, I have a jerk cord or I have the the pole string uh, spinning wing, and I'm trying to trying to basically build up this this picture of a lifelike spread and birds that come and join it. And the the neat thing about your decoy system is when you're pulling on that pull string, you're activating that 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 decoy's wings. So you're giving the the impression that there's a bird landing right there. But you're also creating ripples on the water with those other decoys that are on the stand. And if you have a calm day, like this morning, um, I had wind, so it wasn't a big deal. Um, you know, the surface of the pond that I was hunting was rippled. The last time I hunted it, it was dead calm. So you know, my decoys, I had no motion out there whatsoever. So they're just a static piece of plastic. And that's not what a pond looks like when there's ducks in the water. So chopping up that surface really helps as well, right? Oh, exactly. Yeah, those ripples are super, super important. And uh, they, they're just, they make the whole the whole spread look lifelike. And it doesn't take a lot. I mean, you don't have to have the whole spread moving. But uh, you need to have enough motion to where, the, where they, they look at it and they buy it. Yeah. What, what are some of the differences between calling duck and calling geese? You know, so calling ducks and calling geese, they can be similar in a lot of aspects, but I think geese, it's a little bit more of a, a <laughs> it's a hard way to describe it. I'm, I'm more or less trying to break them down and force their hand. You know, unless I'm, unless I'm on the X, which hey, sometimes we're, we're fortunate. We get to hunt the X and, uh, and all I'm doing is clucking them on them right in. I'm just trying to make it look like a lifelike situation. But there's a lot of times, I mean, for years I hunted traffic. And when you're hunting traffic, you're, you're, you're basically forcing their hand. You're trying to force them to come to a spot that um, they might not necessarily have been, been, been thinking of when they left the roost that morning. And uh, I would get really aggressive, and I try to keep them, you know, spinning as tight as possible. And you'll kind of hear me talk about spinning birds, and that's a, it's an important thing to, to realize. Your goal is to spin those birds down into decoys. So you want to keep them circling until they've, you know, decided, okay, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and land. But when I'm hunting lessers or I'm hunting hawkers and calling up those birds, my number one thing to do is I want to get them breaking down from their their feeding flock once they've left the roost. Because when they, they leave the roost, they're fairly, you know, charged up. Um, 
you got to think about these geese, you know, if they've been hunting for a while, only time they're really getting harassed is when they go out to feed. Um, most people don't hunt roost ponds or don't have access to hunt the roosts if it's a refuge. So these birds, they know as soon as they leave that, that refuge area, this is, this is when something bad could happen. So they're all charged up and you're, you're trying to paint the picture of, uh, of a, an active feed. And uh, it's, it's a lot of calling. It, it can be a lot of fun, very rewarding. And, and flagging too, right? I love flagging. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Flagging is a very important piece of the puzzle. And if you're in an area where you can be amongst the decoys or close enough to the decoys to, to paint that picture of birds landing and um, readjusting, that's, that's a really, really good way to, to uh, get a bird's reaction and get them coming your way. Do you like eating ducks? I do. I do. I, I wish I had a little more time to, to uh, prepare some the way I really enjoy eating them. But uh, we do a lot of jerky, a lot of pepperoni. Um, Cody, I mean, I'll hunt with Cody more. He, uh, he's got some really good recipes, but I do enjoy eating it. I'm, I'm not as big of a fan of geese. Um, most of our geese go into a summer sausage or, or a pepperoni pile, but, uh, I mean, I can eat as much of that as a guy would want. That, that's a pretty good, pretty good, uh, beer drinking snack. It is. Um, there, I feel like there's a lot of things that you can do with it, especially if you, if you treat it like you treat all the rest of the red meat in your life and you don't cook it well done it's really enjoyable. Oh, absolutely. I hear a lot of guys um, talk about how, oh, it's super tough and it's so chewy. And I just cringe when I hear that because it's like, man, it doesn't have to be that way. <laughs> it needs to be red on the inside and uh, there's a ton of flavor. And especially if you, if you take the time and care to, to take care of the meat after you've um, taken it off the bird, you know, I'll use salt water. Some guys use milk, um, kind of draw out some of that blood, any of the bloodshot and just uh, put a little extra effort into it. It could be a really good table fare. Well, I'd love to hear some kind of waterfowl hunting stories, if you can think of any. Some sometimes where, or you f- you feel like you made mistakes, or if you really got it right, or something fun happened. Oh yeah, you know, I mean, there's there's so many stories when it comes to waterfowl hunting of the the good days, the bad days. Um, you know, I think some of my favorite stories are big big weather, um, especially hunting a live river system. You know, hunting hunting areas where the where the wind picks up real real big or even like really big snow days, those are always a lot of fun. Um, I think probably some of my most rewarding days days in the in the waterfowl blind are probably the days with kids. You know, watching watching kids or even just you know folks have never been bird hunting and watch them uh, as their eyes kind of light up um, watching birds come into the decoys. That that for me is probably the most rewarding thing that I get to see. Um, you know, pretty consistently throughout the season. I just I, I think a lot of people don't realize how much fun it is to watch these birds. Uh, work into the decoys and uh and just it's it's kind of an, a, an infatuation after a while of just watching birds in flight um i think you probably understand that you like to waterfowl hunt but that's one of my my favorite parts of being out there that and that and the dogs i mean i i enjoy watching my dog work and watching other people's dogs work and um that's one of the most rewarding things for me now too is i've got a two-year-old dog you <laughs> you you had a good time hunting with Ryder, and she's definitely coming into her own and um that bond between myself and her and, and watching our, our bond grow and her trust for me grow. That's a, that's, that's a big part of it. And it's such teamwork. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. it's a lot of fun watching, watching a pup go from, from not wanting to listen and not wanting to trust you to then all of a sudden you can kind of work as a team. And um, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Very rewarding. You know, I, I work with my dog a lot differently than, than most serious waterfowlers do in that, um, 
you know, it's, and it's just the type of situations that I hunt in. But as soon as I stand up to shoot a bird, she breaks and I'm totally fine with that. I don't want to have to tell her to go get a bird. And, um, you know, I, I can kind of tell her over and back a little bit, but really I think she just kind of looks at my hand as if I was throwing a stick or something like that. But mostly she goes out and does it all on her own and she'll bring a bird back. And if it's still alive, she'll hold on to it. If it's dead, she'll put it in a pile in an area of her choosing that's near the blind and, and then get back in and get ready for the next bird. And I absolutely love seeing her initiative and, and watching her creativity. And this morning, you know, in one, in one flight, I killed two birds that landed probably 150 yards apart and she marked both of them. But one of them was in grass. that was six feet tall and really, really dense. Um, and it probably took her 10 minutes to go find that bird. And I could have went over there and helped her because um, I had a better mark on it than she did. But I also wanted her to work through the process of figuring it out. And, you know, I love seeing that. I, I love seeing her work and work and work and earn it and not give up and not look back to me for help and, and do it on her own. It, it's just the dog aspect of it. And I hear this from every type of, of bird hunter that uses dogs. If it's not already the most important aspect of your bird hunting, it will become that. Oh, 100%. You know, you're, yeah, you're hitting on everything that I, I love about watching dogs right there. And, um, you know, I, I didn't grow up in a family. We didn't have, uh, bird dogs at all. And so when I finally got my first dog of my own, um, it was a, it was a huge learning curve there, but, uh, I, I, I honestly can't even think about going uh, duck hunting anymore without a dog and it doesn't have to be my own. I love, I love watching my friends with their dogs as well, but just that aspect of the hunt is such an important part to, to, to me and a lot of people I'm around. Um, but yeah, what, what you just described is watching, watching a dog hunt. Um, that's one of my favorite things. My, my older dog, Molly, that was one of my favorite things to do with her. I mean, she, she'd go barreling into blackberries and, and, uh, you know, Russian olives and tulies and all sorts of nasty stuff. And you can kind of hear guys snickering in the blind, like, Oh, she's not going to find that bird. And Hey, you know, sometimes she didn't, but there's a lot of times where she came out of there and she's covered in all sorts of nasty stuff and she's got a duck in her mouth. And, um, that's a, that's a pretty proud, proud moment. Yeah, I had uh, I had my dog take off after a pheasant one time and I'd I'd hit it and it kind of wobbled in flight and knocked a couple feathers out of it and it dropped a leg. But, you know, it locked up its wings and it glided out of sight, um, went well over a mile and my dog took off after it and I tried to call her back. She was not interested in my opinion about the situation at that point. And, you know, we just continued the walk. We had another dog there and she showed up half an hour later with a pheasant. I'm not saying it was the same pheasant, but she went and found a pheasant and brought it back. <laughs> it doesn't matter at that point. She, she did her job. So, yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> this one will work. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. But you, you're just, you're so proud of, of your friend at that point that, um, I don't know. I love it. I love the dog aspect of it. Well, it, 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 it's pretty cool. Yeah. You, you, you asked the question about, about waterfowl and stories and, you know, um, in my younger years, I probably would have told you about some sort of, you know, hunt where we killed a seven man limit in you know, an hour, but any more of these days, it's, uh, just not about that. <laughs> I'd much rather hunt with kids and, um, watch the dog work. So Ryder's two years old last year, you know, she was, she was new to everything. She had her first retrieve just a little over a year ago. 
Um, she's a beautiful little black lab and, you know, she's just starting to get the confidence to swim on her own a little bit last year. And she was looking back to you for reassurance a lot. How are you kind of going to continue developing her this year as you get into waterfowl season? So what I've always, uh, I've always looked at these dogs when they're in their first couple of years is, um, it's just all about getting the reps. You know, I'm trying to get her on as many birds as I possibly can. And, um, that's how she's going to learn and build confidence. Like last year was a big year for for us, um, with regards to that trust, you know, I mean, <laughs> that hunt that you and I went on with, uh, Cody and Jesse, that was her first time really getting into, into that cold, cold type water. I mean, she'd been in a couple other hunts where it was cooler outside, but that water was pretty dang frigid that day. And there was a few times where she kind of looked back at, <laughs> looked back at me and she was like, I really have to do this. But, uh, you know, she did it. <laughs> it was pretty funny. I just, I remember that look in her eye was like, man, why don't, why don't you get in here and do this? <laughs> but, yeah. But, yeah. This, this year, I'm, my hope is just to get her, get her as many birds as we can. And just, uh, you know, she'll build that confidence through the repetition. So here, here's a question that I feel like a lot of people are going to have. Where do you go duck and goose hunting? Cause the nature of this is that a lot of the time, especially if you're hunting fields, they're going to be on private land. So how do you do it? Like, how do you approach somebody about that? Like, how do you find places to hunt? Um, I, I, I spent a lot of time, you know, knocking on doors for a lot of years. And I'm pretty fortunate now that the areas I'm hunting, um, you know, I've, I've got a pretty, pretty good relationship with the landowners. And so um, for me, it's, you know, I'll stop by in, in the summertime and just say hi and check in and and for the most part the permission's already there but um starting out you know just knock on doors and uh you know dress yourself in a presentable fashion you know i see a lot of guys that jump out of their pickup and they got their sweatpants tucked into their romeos and they got a chew in their mouth and you know they well man they wouldn't give me permission well it's like dude <laughs> you know try try to paint a little bit a little bit better picture for yourself and, and for what you're up to um you know a lot of times i'll offer to help out with work around the farm if they need it most of the time they don't take you up on it, but a few times they will. And then from there, it's, you know, once you get a few of those, those farm, um, you know, landowner relationships, that's what really spins off into, into more access because you have that reputation of, Hey, this guy, you know, he opens and closes the gates and picks up his trash. That that's a big one too. I hear from a lot of folks. Yeah. You know, I used to let people bird hunt, but they just kept leaving their trash everywhere. And, um, you got to treat that property as if it's your own and you wouldn't want to go walk out and you're, you know, back 40 there and, and find a whole bunch of shotgun shells and um, candy bar wrappers and you know, trash laying around. So, um, you know, take care of that property, build those relationships. And then all of a sudden you'll be sitting there talking one day and, um, you know, the person you're, whose land you're hunting, they say, oh yeah, you know, my neighbor, they, they've got a bunch of keys too. You should go over and talk to them. And um, things kind of start to start spiral from there. So you're telling me that if you act like a good guy and you present yourself in a respectable manner and develop relationships that that will be reciprocated. <laughs> right. I know it's, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. That is nuts. I know. I had I no know. idea it would be so complicated. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. If only the same approach would work for big game hunting. Yeah. If only. I'm sure in the big game world, it's a whole different ball game. I haven't, uh, I haven't had a whole lot of luck getting permission for, <laughs> for areas to big game hunt myself, but not saying that they're not out oh, there. Oh, really? Yeah. But I, I also, I, also, I was, I, I was joking. I, I, I haven't asked a lot of folks either. We, we mainly hunt, you know, the, the spots we hunt in public land stuff, but I'm sure, like you said, you know, it, it just takes a little, little bit of legwork and 
I mean, we're so fortunate now with, you know, apps like OnX that, I mean, they give you half the information right there. Back in back in our earlier days, we were getting on the, the tax lot ID maps online and trying to decode who owned what and whose property was whose. And um, anymore, it's, it's so much easier to find out, you know, who owns what. Yeah. Plan ahead of time. Uh, I will, I will tell guys this, if uh, guys and gals, if there is a crop in your area that these birds are going to land in and feed on, like say grain, for example, um, there's probably a grain growers association in your area and they have meetings might be two or three times a year. You might want to go attend one of those, like a (laughs) box of donuts, get to know these people and just develop that relationship. Like they, they have something of value to you. Right. And, and it may or may not be of value to them, but if they don't know you, then why should they allow you access into, into their home, which, which is their property. Right. But if they get to know you and you're offering something in return for this thing that has value, well now, now we're bartering. Like this is the system that, that humans live by. So it, it's not, it's really not rocket science. And the same thing with big game guys, just go ask, like, they're not going to bite you. They might say no. And you're like, all right, thanks for your time. Like moving on. It's, it's okay. But you, you, you got to ask, you'll never get permission if you don't ask. And you're totally right. Just clean yourself up. You know, it's not the time to be fully kitted out in camouflage and know what you're asking for. Be specific about it. Be honest about it. If you're going to bring friends, say, hey, is it all right if a couple guys come with me? And and then, you know, let them know. Be like, hey, I'm going to clean up everything. Not only will I clean up all of my shotgun shells, if I see any other shotgun shells out there, I'm going to clean those ones up too. Because a shotgun shell laying in a field, believe it or not, will be a place that a piece of grain or a stalk of corn cannot grow next year. Like a seed will not come up underneath of a shotgun shell. Yep. Um, so they don't want that trash out there. You're, you're limiting their crop production um, in, in a very small way, but just be conscious about it. No, you're, you're exactly correct. And um, yeah, when it comes to approaching these landowners too, you know, don't just jump right out and say, Hey, I want to hunt your property. <laughs> Introduce yourself. Tell them what you're up to. Um, just try to start some type of a conversation before you just just jump right out there and ask them. And there's been times too where you know I've gotten lucky and I kind of learned a little bit of a trend. But um, if you can find them, you know, during their downtime, not when they're busy, but you know, if they're out there harvesting, it's probably not the best time to ask them to you know stop their combine and jump out and talk to you. <laughs> They've got they got a lot going on and, and they're pretty busy. But in the, in the winter time, I mean, for the most part they're, they got a lot of downtime. Everything's, everything's pretty well put to put away and they might be feeding cows, you know, twice a day, but outside of that, they're just around the farm. So. Yeah. Uh, what you got going on born and raised these days? Oh man, we're, uh, we've got a new call line that we're working on and, uh, got a lot of different things kind of ironed in the fire, if you will. And, uh, we just started doing these elk calls this last year and, uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. I love working with these guys and, um, we've been friends a long time. And so it's kind of a natural thing to get into business together and, and, uh, start building calls. But yeah, it's, uh, it'll, it'll be a lot of fun. I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. Tell me about these elk calls. So the elk calls, um, the first two elk calls that, uh, we, we've been, we started, or I guess been working on, 
Uh, the first one we came out with right as elk season got started. And uh, it's actually an all acrylic um, one piece open read cow call. And uh, it's you know, something I've been wanting to do for a long time. It's actually off, off of a, a duck call um, J frame. So it uses a cork instead of using two pieces of, or like instead of using a plastic wedge, it uses a cork to secure the reed. And uh, the acrylic gives you some really good good sounds, um, a really, I guess you could say, a pure or clean sound and a lot of volume. So that was something we, we wanted. We wanted to do something different that hadn't been done before and um, try to achieve some different sounds and more more volume. And then the second one is, uh, it's going to be coming out here in the next, oh, probably a few weeks, um, right around the holidays. But it's actually, it's a two-piece um, cow call. It's acrylic and aluminum. And uh, we, we experimented with some new materials during the season. And, it's actually the call that I ran all all September, and uh, I loved it. You can pull the call apart, get two different sounds. Uh, the aluminum has got a really cool buzzy buzzy sound to it, and uh, it's offered in three different reed types as well. So if you want the calls 100% tunable, you can tune at your house and and uh, get it just the way you, that you want it. So it was another thing we wanted. We wanted you know a call that people can cut, not necessarily customize, but you know tune to to their liking. So that's the that's that's the start right now. And then, yeah, that that's huge because the waterfowl world was way ahead of the elk world for a long time in, in terms of the quality, the craftsmanship of calls and elk calls are just like these throwaway things for the most part. And waterfowl calls, on the other hand, you know, duck calls, a lot of them are built for, for generations. These are collector's items. Um, and people do want to tune them. They want to trim their reeds. They want to get that call to function the way their mouth and lungs function together so that they can make the sound that they want to be making. And, you know, if it's not tunable, you're never going to be able to achieve that. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of things, um, a lot of things I've noticed over the years working with different guys on, on waterfall calls and, and elk calls and whatnot is, um, I know I, I use, I have a lot of air. I, I, I use a lot of air on my duck call, my goose call. And I used to be able to blow through these elk calls really easily because I just put a lot of air through the call. Well, with the different reeds and uh, the different widths, um, I could put a, a number three reed in the call. And I mean, there's no way I can blow through it. It can handle a lot of air. But if you don't, don't have a lot of air, you can put a number one in and all of a sudden the call operates the same with a lot less air. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and it's different from one calling system to the next. Like I like to use a, a double reed, uh, duck call. And I, I tend to have a lot of air when I'm calling ducks, when I'm calling elk, uh, I tend to go the opposite direction and I'll use a, a thinner, softer latex material and I'm using a lot less air. So it, it just, it really just depends on the situation that you're in and you've got to play around with it. If you're going to achieve the best result that you can. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the, the old adage that one call should do it all. I mean, yeah, there's calls out there that are really versatile and uh, you can get a lot of different sounds out of it, but there's a lot of calls that are, are very specialized. And uh, that's, that's some kind of, we wanted to get, get a call that people can handle, but then also change. That's cool. I look forward to trying one out. Oh, no. Um, you don't happen to have your, your, your duck or your goose calls with you, do you? I don't. I'm in the office right now and they're out in the shop, but uh, yeah, I should have thought about that and grabbed them. <laughs> Okay. Well, the last time uh, 
I asked you to to call ducks. You froze up on me for a second. It was one of the funnier things I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was I was I was a little uh, I was a little nervous or embarrassed. I'm not sure a little bit of both. But yeah, you you put me on the spot. And I just froze up. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, you've uh, you've been in some duck calling competitions too, right? Yeah, you know I I spent a lot of time traveling and competing in duck and goose calling contests for a lot of years and. Um, it's something actually I, I wouldn't mind getting back into, but I uh, kind of got out of it there for a little while. But yeah, it was a lot of fun and had uh, had quite a bit of success. And, uh, got, you know, the, the best part was I got to meet a lot of really cool people and uh, and learn a lot about you know, calling styles and calls themselves and um, got invited to go hunt a lot of great places. And it's a great way to network. What kind of calling success did you have? Um, you know, at the state level, I won the, our, our state duck calling contest, I think six times. And when you win the state, um, duck calling contest, that then qualifies you for the worlds, which is held in Stuttgart, Arkansas. So I had the opportunity to go back there and, and, uh, and travel. It's Thanksgiving weekend every year this year, of course, because of COVID it's been, been canceled, but, uh, you know, they have the, the Stuttgart, uh, wings over the Prairie Festival. And, um, that area, that region is a huge huge duck hunting area lots lots of tradition and history and um you get to go visit you know rnt calls and max prairie wings and um had a chance to hunt some flooded timber and some of the flooded flooded rice and compete against i mean some of the best duck callers that ever walked across the stage and you, you get humbled pretty quick when you're walking down the street and there's a 10 year old kid walking down the road and blowing a duck call better than you are <laughs> but uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun and um i also got to do the same thing on the on the goose end I uh, went back and um, competed at the the World Goose Calling Contest in Easton, Maryland, for a lot of years. And I had a lot more success on the goose side than the duck. I I never did place better than you know top thirty for the duck calling contest, but in goose um, I made it in the top five and um, took third third one year and almost won it, but I missed it by by two points. But a lot of a lot of good memories, a lot of good experiences back there. What are some of the differences between stage calling and field calling? Um, so the biggest difference when, when it comes to stage calling over, over calling in the field is when you're on stage, um, it's how, how loud can you get? How fast can you get? And you're, you're basically trying to, to give the judges every single um, note that you can blow and paint a picture of calling birds in. You know, you lose them, then you call them back in and land them. But you're trying to do that in 90 seconds. So you're calling hard and you're calling fast the whole time. And, uh, the volume, that was actually one thing that kind of separate me from the rest of the pack on the, uh, on the goose calling side is I always had a lot of volume. And so I'm running that call as hard as I possibly can without breaking it over. Um, whereas in the field, I, I tune my calls a lot easier, a lot lighter. And, um, that, yeah, that's definitely the number one. And then I would never blow a, a true stage routine in a hunting situation. Um, cause there's, there's nothing to read on, on stage. You're just trying to paint a picture. Whereas in the field, you're, you're trying to read those birds and, and their reactions. I think some of those feeder sequences that I've seen are, are among the most impressive feats of calling, you know, out there, especially in the duck world, like what those guys can, can get out of a call. And then the speed that they can get on some of these short read goose calls, it is just unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. The, there are some really talented callers out there and um, it just takes a lot of time and practice, but it's definitely fun to listen to. And, um, you know, they have these contests that are called uh, meat calling or, you know, more of a duck hunting style routine. And uh, they have a two man contest and you get, you get two guys that can, can, you know, run a feed chatter 
like uh, like some of these guys can. It sounds like a hundred ducks in the water. It's it's pretty cool. What do you feel like is the most overrated call um, for for ducks in a hunting scenario? Overrated. That's kind of a tough one. Um, you know, I I actually I use a feed chatter a lot, and a lot of guys they they think the feed chatter is kind of bogus, but um, I use it to kind of keep birds you know coming in my direction and kind of you know build that lifelike um, scenario. But you might laugh at this. I don't use a single quack very much at all. I really don't. Um, I don't, I don't know why, but it's just, it's nothing that I, I use on a daily basis. So maybe, maybe just a single quack. Um, I know a lot of guys like it for confidence, but I just never had much luck with it. I, I run a five to seven note greeting sequence, you know, in 10 or 12 different, uh, you know, ways. And then I run a, a feed call a lot, but the single quack is something that I don't use very much. And I also don't use, I don't use like a, a real true, you know, high ball greeting style call. Um, that's just something that I've never had much luck with. So when you're, when you're doing a, a hail call or a greeting call, you know, what, I know it's tough without having a call there, but what does that sound like? What, what emotion are you trying to convey? So what I'm doing is I'm trying to, I'm, I'm using volume of course, but I'm trying to drag those notes out and I'm pleading. That's I always, I always tell guys I'm pleading with the ducks to turn. And so if you could, you know, picture that in your mind when you're, when you're blowing your call, um, Really, just try to try to get that emotion through the call of you pleading for those ducks to turn to you, and uh, that's that's something I, I do on a daily basis, and I've had a lot of luck with it. Gotcha. And uh, what other emotions are you thinking about at different times of calling? You know, if I, if I'm hunting in an area where birds are feeding, um, feed a feed chatter, especially like a real fast uh, feed chatter, you're building excitement, <clears throat> and I've seen it time and time again with birds as you get them more excited. And their their wings, you know, tighten up, and they, they start dropping down faster. You can tell that those birds are, are getting excited about joining that 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 mop of ducks on the ground and and feeding. So that's something you can do with a feed call. Um, and then you know, in a in a, in a loafing type type scenario, or like a, you know, area where ducks are just trading and loafing midday, um, I probably do a little less calling, more of a, a finesse style. And I'm just trying to call with emotion each time I you know, of of birds relax on the water. That's that's all I'm doing. I'm not trying to get too excited but I want them to know there's plenty of ducks down here and there's, they're happy and content. Well, that's awesome. Any advice that you have to somebody who's just getting started? Maybe, maybe they're just barely getting started and, and have a shotgun and, and want to go out and give this a try. Absolutely. Um, you know, I grew up hunting public land and to me, I think it's made, made me the, the hunter that I am. Um, not saying that if you hunt, you know, exclusively private land, it makes me less of a hunter, but you'll definitely learn a lot of tricks and, and you'll learn a lot faster hunting public land. Um, just cause it's a little bit, a little bit tougher scenario, but, uh, we have a lot of, a lot of really good public land access for waterfowl in the state. Um, whether it be, you know, our, our state wildlife areas or it be, um, all the rivers and, and creeks we can hunt, but definitely hunting, hunting public, I think will make you a better hunter faster. And then try, if you can, try to find someone to kind of take you under their wing. You know, I was fortunate I had a, a few different people that, that showed me a lot and they weren't annoyed at me asking hundreds of questions all day. But uh, if you can find someone to, to hook up with and, and learn from, that'll, that'll definitely speed things up for you a lot. I'm also curious about your take on shotguns and ammo. I was hoping you'd ask that question because that's a question I get all the time and um, I, I've I feel pretty, pretty strongly in, in what I do and how it works. Um, but I get questions all the time, especially from clients, you know, Hey, what choke are you using? What, 
ammunition are you using? What type of ammunition is it? You know, this and this and this. And, um, I, I'm, I'm kind of a no frills guy. I shoot the same choke tube all season long and I shoot the same ammunition all, all season long. And for me, it's pattern density. So I like for ducks, I shoot a, a size three shot uh, because it patterns the best through my choke. And then I like speed and I like to shoot the same speed all the time. And I kind of get, get some interesting looks when guys are like, oh, I never, never really thought about that. I'm like, well, if you're a bow hunter, you wouldn't start changing up the lengths of your arrows mid season. You know, you wouldn't all of a sudden start changing things up after you've got your, after you've got your, uh, your bow sighted in and dialed in, you wouldn't just, Oh, all of a sudden I'm going to shoot a, a longer arrow that's heavier with a different weight broadhead. Um, and I think it's the same thing with, uh, with shotguns, you know, it's all that, that muscle memory and that, that, that shot picture. You, you want that to be every single time the same. And so, um, I shoot a, a three inch number three for ducks going 1550 feet per second. Um, not really brand, brand loyal or brand specific. And I've had a lot of luck with it. So that's, that's kind of my take on, on shotgun shooting for both ducks and geese. Well, that's great to hear, um, from my perspective, because I do a lot of the same. So I, I buy cases of three inch threes and that's what I shoot for, for everything. And furthermore, that's what I've shot for several years is the same brand of three, three inch number three shot shotgun shells. And I don't have to think about leads anymore. Um, I just shoot my gun and it works out really well. I also have only one choke and it is a, uh, Carlson close range choke. So I think, you know, it's probably somewhere between improved or modified. It it is a waterfowl choke. Um, that's just what I shoot and everything is, is just very predictable for me. And, you know, for a long time I bounced around and, and I couldn't afford to buy a case of shotgun shells. So I'd buy whatever shotgun shells were available and the feet per second could vary by, you know, 300 feet per second from one box to the next. Like, how am I supposed to get consistent with that? I can't calculate that in my mind when a bird's flying around. Oh, I, I, could, I couldn't agree more. And I see it a lot with clients that, you know, they'll start off the morning with this box of shells and then the you know a few hours in they've got a different box of shells and i'm asking them i go well what are the you know what are the speeds on that oh this one's you know 1300 this one's 1500 and i'm like you really that's 200 feet per second i mean that's a huge difference in your lead and uh you know and you wouldn't go sight in your rifle with a 168 grain bullet and then when it comes for hunting season go shoot a 195 <laughs> you know it's just you wouldn't do that and uh i, I kind of take the same approach to, to waterfowl hunting for sure yeah well, is there anything else that you want to talk about that I haven't brought up? Uh, when are we going hunting again? That's what I want to know. That's what I want to know too. That's what I was hoping you were going to bring up. <laughs> Not soon enough. I, I'm thinking December. That sounds great to me. I'm, I think, I'm, yeah. I'm headed to Montana here and tomorrow. And once I get back from deer season, it's a uh, full, full bore waterfowl after that. So Nice. Nice. Well, I kind of want to drag my jet boat over to the coast and, uh, and do some crabbing in December. So maybe I can work a little waterfowl into that too. I like it. That'd be fun. It'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. I, I had an absolute blast, uh, when I got to, to hunt with you and Jesse and, and Cody last year and, and little, little baby rider. She's such a sweet dog. Look forward to hunting with her again. And you know, if, if people have more questions about waterfowl, um, calling, if they have questions about uh, about these elk calls, where do they get a hold of you? Um, so you can 
so check me out on uh, either Instagram or Facebook. I've got accounts on there. There's just my name, Eric Strand. And then the uh, website for the calls is bornraisedoutdoors.com. Um, and then for the decoys, it's uh, decoydancer.com. Awesome, man. Well, thank you very much for taking the time today. Really appreciate you. And I cannot wait to go hunt with you again. I'm looking forward to it, man. Thanks for having me on. It was, uh, it was great to catch up. All right. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. This episode was edited by Emily Brannigan, with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Artwork for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatterlin and digitized by Celia Christofferson. If you enjoyed the show, I encourage you to share it with a friend and subscribe. You can find photos and more content on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.